a listener production. Oh, can you believe I'm doing Dry July? <laughs> yeah, that might have been the thing that shocked me the most when I came back from Cape York and started scrolling through social media. Oh, where'd you get this idea? But good on you. Oh, thanks. And I've already raised so much money. Like I made the goal a thousand and it hit that. And then I made it 2000 and it's hit that now. And it's because I was really smart. I told everyone when they donated to do really funny donation names and Mm. comments. And if you go to my Instagram, you see how hilarious they are. We have some very, very witty gistners. We do. Yeah, they're all just the gist related and they're all so funny. So I just want to say thanks to everyone for donating. Um, oh, we haven't even started the episode. I just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, well, anyway, yeah, thanks for donating. I'm doing Dry July. They do have this little thing, though, called a golden ticket. Mm-hmm. And if somebody um, donates a golden ticket, you are allowed to drink that day. So if there's like some special occasion or something. <laughs> so just saying. Not that she's if, dropping if any a of you, out there, Jisnes. When you go to donate, there's an option, regular donation or golden ticket donation. So, you know, if you if the mood, you know, moves you, then there's that option <laughs> there is all I'm saying for no particular reason if you'd like to have a look at that. But anyway, take it away, my dulcet-toned Adonis. (laughs) Such a subtle hint you dropped there. Um, Desperate for a wine? Me? (laughs) I'll just pick that up for you. Hello, Gistners, and welcome back for another episode of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast in which Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a story we think you'll find interesting enough to share at a dinner party, and it's your turn this week, Miss Waterland. It is! my turn. And I've got one that I think is relevant to the current news cycle, which I would like to get into talking about just now because we recorded our last episode so long ago and in breaking news, I've just been dying to talk to you about Free Britney. So here we go. <laughs> breaking news, breaking news. I got the scoop. I see extra, extra. Read all about it. Breaking news. Uh, the fallout of Britney's court appearance. Oh my gosh. Tell me all about it. Okay. Do you know anything? I do. Yes. Um, okay. I have. I've listened to the audio and even yeah. though you described what had happened so clearly to me and it broke my heart, it just broke into another few little pieces actually hearing mm. her speak. And also, don't you think from the audio, because I hadn't listened to the audio when we talked about it, I'd only read it because the mm. audio wasn't out yet. Her voice sounded normal. Yes. It sounded that lower register. Mm-hmm. It's Even though she was talking quite fast because she was nervous, she just sounded completely different to her Instagram posts. Yes. Yeah. And mm. like we had read those comments from people saying that they're doing something to speed her voice up, to make it seem like yeah. it's higher pitched and she's more sort of girlish and frivolous. I mean, she she really meant business and that was really and truly her speaking from the heart. If you haven't heard the audio, you can find it on YouTube. It's on, yeah. If you just Google it, it, you can find it. Yeah. It is out there. And I think everyone should listen to it. And I'm sure you'll get into talking about this, but I mean, she deserves to be so incredibly proud of herself because she wasn't just fighting for her own rights. She was in a very impassioned way, talking about how the laws have to change and that no Mm. one should be in the situation that she's in and she's looking for real meaningful change for others Mm. as well as for herself. 
And we've had um, quite a few people message us and say this reminds them so much of the movie called I Care A Lot, which mm. we've talked about on the podcast, I think, a couple months ago. Yeah. And so people should watch it. It's um, on Amazon Prime, I think, and um, it is a, a film about a woman who – scams people like this for a living. She takes out illegal conservatorships, most um, conservatorships, not mm. shits. Most, <laughs> or they should be called conservatorships, really. I agree. But she, she takes them out mostly on elderly people to basically get access to all their money and just shoves them in a nursing home and takes away all their autonomy, and which is exactly what has basically happened to mm. Britney Spears. So, yeah, thanks a lot of people for telling us about that. Um, we've both seen it, but you should. If you want to get an idea of how egregious these situations can go, egregiously these situations can go, you should um, watch I Care A Lot. Mm-hmm. What was really upsetting was a new article has come out, a long-form investigative, investigative, I can never say that. It's a tricky off the cuff. one. Yeah. I can never say it first go. I always try. And I just tried. Could you tell how confidently I went into it and I, I didn't stick the landing? You gave it a Investigative... Go journalism piece by Ronan Farrow and Gia Tolentino and Mm. they'd spoken to like members close to Britney's team. Have you read it? I posted it on the Just the Gist like stories and stuff. Yeah, I read the first half and then it started to get into um, more stuff about her history that I didn't really Mm. need a refresher on. But the first half where they're talking about the 911 call, I did find. Yeah, so very that's the thing that no one knew. The night before she got up in court to give that statement, she called 911 and said that she was being held against her will under an abusive conservatorship. So she had clearly mm-hmm. planned like what she like what she was gonna do. She'd really mm-hmm. thought about it. I mean, I think one of the shocking things to come out of that New Yorker article, which people had speculated about but didn't have confirmation on, is that her lawyer, Sam Ingham, the guy who's was appointed by the conservatorship to represent her rights and mm-hmm. her needs and her wants, is getting paid by her mm-hmm. $525,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And he has, it seems, advised her terribly. He mm-hmm. has advised her only in ways that would keep the conservatorship going, which why wouldn't he want it to keep going when he's getting half a million bucks a year? And um, she got up in court and said, I had no idea I was allowed to contest my conservatorship. And everybody has said, well, that's something your lawyer should have told you. So mm-hmm. he started looking really bad. A couple of days after that New Yorker piece came out, he quit. Mm-hmm. So he's now quit. The trust that was in charge of half of the conservatorship along with her dad, they came out and said, whoa, we don't want any part of this. We're quitting. So mm-hmm. Bessemer Trust, out. A few other people involved with the conservatorship have all just been like, we don't want any part of this. Bye. And that's because rumours have it, Netflix is releasing a free Britney documentary in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. And they think it's going to make them all look really effing bad. So they're all jumping shit before they get in big, big trouble. Uh-huh. That's okay. the rumour. So good news that they're getting out because they're clearly corrupt, terrible people and yeah. they should not be in these positions. That's great. Now, when do they face the consequences? Like there has yes, to be some sort of legal ramification for this. Because as we all know, the hashtag is changing from free Britney to avenge Britney. Is it? F yes. Yes. Because F all of them. I also heard today that Miley Cyrus, Christina Aguilera, 
Mariah Carey and Paris Hilton. someone else, Paris Hilton, are all coming together to put together a monetary fund to help fund her legal costs, independent legal costs, mm. so that she doesn't have people who are only making money off her staying in this situation caring for her. Mm-hmm. So people are jumping on board. It's happening. Hopefully it happens quickly because every mm. day that she's still in that slavery situation. Um, it really is. is I mean, her her family is the interesting bit though. Mm. So like her sister, it has come out, is also in charge of a big chunk of her money. She's in charge of the trust that all her son's money is in that Brittany put aside for her sons. And she really? gave that to Jamie Lynn to be in charge of because she didn't want her dad to have any access to that money. Uh-huh. But it's a trust for her sons that I guess they shouldn't get until they're adults. But it's come out that in the last two years, Jamie Lynn has tried to have the trust open so she can access the money in it. Uh. So there's that going on. Her brother, um, is turns out, is employed by the conservatorship, makes a lot of money off it. Her mother... Um, just like Britney's team, who knows what they do? Just like team, like being on team, this Mm -hmm. person, Mm -hmm. her mother has released a statement saying she's really upset by the whole thing and thinks the conservatorship should be ended. But it's also like, yeah, I don't know. You, that's a convenient timing, (laughs) (laughs) but Mm. you know, and her dad, this stupid ass pig, he has scheduled a court date. I think it's for like next week or a couple weeks from now in which he is going to contest pretty much everything she said in her statement and prove why she actually does need the conservatorship. (sighs) Good luck with that, buddy. Don't yeah. see it happening. But just, a, you know, and another thing to prove how completely incompetent, I'm not going to say incompetent though, because I don't think it was incompetence. I think it was corruption. Her lawyer hadn't even filed a petition to end the conservatorship like she'd asked him like to a year ago. So she was expecting that there was already paperwork in place and the judge was like, no, there's nothing here. If you want to end the conservatorship, you have to file paperwork for that. And he hadn't done anything, like nothing has been done. Of course he hadn't. Then he would have lost his cash cow. Exactly. Oh, this is, it's so so dark and so heartbreaking and so upsetting. And I mean, it makes sense now the fact that she kept saying my entire family in her testimony. She kept talking about all of her family. They were all actively participating in this. And I'm assuming you've seen this. This is one of the best sort of memes that's come out of this whole thing. Um, Wendy Williams, when she's sharing her very candid reaction. Do you know who Wendy Williams is? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, she <laughs> sort of screams and shouts and berates the entire family. Shame on you, Mr. Spears. Shame on you, yeah. Mrs. Spears. You had me fooled. Blah, 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 blah. And then she ends the rant with death to all of them. And then she <laughs> looks completely shocked at herself that that came out of her mouth when the audience girl sort of goes, <gasps> but you have to look that up. Everyone I- go and look that up. I love Wendy Williams so much because she is so unhinged and out of control. She's hilarious. Like Mm. the amount of times she's been drunk in the middle of her talk show, it's so funny. (laughs) She's a lot like, um, uh, what's her name, from Parks and Rec? Joan Calamezzo? Joan Calamezzo. That is what Wendy Williams is like. Like, it's like her staff know, her her like um, production team knows no matter what she says or does, do not take her off camera because she will kill you. My favourite Wendy Williams anecdote, <laughs> it was like I think about six months ago where she f- completely unexpectedly 
on camera live farted and burped at the same time (laughs) (laughs) and just like audibly and then just looked really shocked that she had done it. (laughs) Like she's just, I love her talk show. If you want some unhinged live chaotic energy where you don't know what's going to happen next, like farting and burping at the same time or yelling death to the Spears family, then (laughs) watch Wendy Williams. She's a very good palate cleanser when you're feeling a bit down and depressed about the Britney situation. So I think that's about where Britney is at. Uh Um, I'll put links in. I've put it all on the Just the Gist Instagram, but I'll put links to that New Yorker article um, so people can go and read it. And um, because there is quite a lot of extra stuff in there that, you know, other places hadn't uncovered yet. And keep an eye out for what is rumoured to be a very shocking Netflix documentary about the Mm. whole thing. Did you listen to the Pieces of Britney podcast by any chance? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Binge that whole thing in an entire day. Um, oh, yeah, that's um by, what's her name? Uh, forget her name. The BBC presenter. Yes. It's very good. And there is, no, no, no. There's, um it's a BBC podcast. It's number one podcast in Australia right now. So just Google, uh, just search in your podcast thing, Pieces of Britney and you'll find it. I normally hate reenactments, but I found them really endearing, the little reenactments they had mm. of the actress being like, Mama, I want to be a star, Mama. You think I'm going to be a star? What a sweet. The female voice actor who portrays was incredible. is actually very convincing. Yeah, There incredible. are moments where you think it might actually be a recording from real life. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I think it's like eight episodes or something. I finished it in a day. Mm, same. The next thing I want to talk about is the the lady at the Tour de France who held out the sign in front of the bikes and caused the worst caused the worst crash in Tour de France history. I just there's not really anything more to the story except I was obsessed with her. I mean, I'm sure everybody's seen it. But at the Tour de France, you know, they they ride through the hills in the countryside. So people just stand on the side of the road and this woman held out a big cardboard sign that said, go grandma and grandpa in Italian or whatever or French. And she stood there because she wanted to be on camera with all the bikes coming up behind her, but I don't think she realised how fast those riders go. (laughs) So one of them bumped into her with a stupid sign. All of them crashed. It looked like mayhem. And she saw the crash and did that thing where Homer Simpson just walks backwards into the hedge (laughs) and outied 5,000. She disappeared. And that's when I got obsessed with it. I was like, where is she gone? What is she feeling? What is she doing? Is she freaking out? Mm. Can you imagine causing that much chaos and then just bouncing out? And so they didn't find her for like a week. And that whole week, everyone I talked to, I couldn't stop talking about. I was like, what do you think she's thinking right now? Do you Mm -hmm. think she's freaking out? (laughs) Like how freaked out do you think she is? What do you think she's going to do? Can you imagine the anxiety of causing that crash and then running away and hiding and knowing you're going to get caught and in trouble. Being the focus of a global manhunt, oh. I'm sure she tried, you know, some last-ditch attempts, like deleting her Facebook and Twitter and everything, hoping Poor to love. conceal her identity. She turned um, herself in in the end. I think the anxiety got too much. Uh, yeah, and... I mean, it's inevitable. She was going to get caught at some point and it is the right thing to do. So what happened to her when she turned herself in? She turned herself in. They have charged her with like, uh, I can't remember the exact wording. It was like 
basically being an idiot, like negligence causing damage to whatever. Mm-hmm. And then she's said like she's incredibly sorry, she's really embarrassed, all that stuff. And sh- there's a court date scheduled for October. I can't imagine she'll get anything. She'll probably get like a fine, like a small fine or something, but <laughs> I just it's like the equivalent of like I can't I just kept trying to think of when I had done something that catastrophic in my life. Like it'd be like knocking over <laughs> someone's wedding cake or do you know what I mean? Like Yeah. You wouldn't think it would ever happen in real life. It yeah. just seems too surreal and ridiculous. Like it should be in a Judd Apatow movie or something. It re- yeah. And the photos are horrific. Like people were badly injured. It looked like a war zone. Mm. Like the way people were on top, it was bad. It was really bad. Surely just- those people have the right to sue her. I actually do think that is a suable <gasps> offence. Well, but I don't know. I was having this conversation with someone and they were like, yeah, but it's not it'd really be the Tour de France because they don't have proper stuff in place to stop. She was just a spectator who held up a sign and she was an idiot and held it out, like was too far out on the road. Like, shouldn't they be the ones in charge of not letting that happen? <sighs> That'll like probably when you get be down her defence, but I well, do yeah. still feel like, you know what? You held the sign. You stood in the wrong place. Oh, You're responsible, decision. lady. It's totally one of those record scratch. You're probably wondering how I ended up here moments, you know, from movies. <laughs> I, was like, I, just, I, I don't know why I'm so obsessed. I think because I think I'm obsessed with it because I am such an anxiety riddled person that I spend every minute of every day worrying that something like that is about to happen to me always. <laughs> and so when I saw that happen to her, I was like, you're an idiot, but there but for the grace of God go any of us. Yeah. Like, for, honestly, <laughs> she just wanted her grandma and grandpa to see her on TV. Like, <sighs> what a nightmare. She learnt that lesson for all of us. Look, I really think if I was in her shoes and toy toy, God forbid, yeah. uh, my defence would be, well... No one ever has any right to be on a bike ever, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you are asking for trouble and you are going to cause trouble if you are on a bike. So they were the sure. ones in the wrong all along. Yeah, you'd definitely be a spectator at the Tour de France then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'd probably be on the side of the road being like, some of us with with cars are trying to get through here. Honk, bike riders. Honk, yeah. Honk. <laughs> Oh, dear. Oh, this is a slight uh, downer transition. Alison Mack from Nexium finally got convicted and sentenced. Ah, uh, okay. Mm. Part of me is hoping that this episode is going to finally be about Nexium because I haven't watched any documentaries. <sighs> I have been hanging yet. out to go. Uh, um, okay, well, tell us what <laughs> we need to know. We were, I am planning an episode on Nexium. It's just she – I was waiting for her to get sentenced and now I just sort of want to tie up the loose ends before I do just the gist of it. But, um, yeah, so she was like the main woman to the dude who was in charge. They did some horrific things to people together. He got like 150 years in prison, Keith Ranieri, mm. but she kind of turned against him at the last minute, by the way, for the last few years since they got caught, she wouldn't speak out against him. I think it's only been the last like year and a half that she was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll tell you everything. And because mm. she turned against him, she only got three years in prison. 
She literally huh. branded women with her initials. Oh. Um, so she's got three years in prison and I'm sure she'll have a lot to say when she gets out. But a lot of people were very angry at how lenient, lenient they mm. thought that was. Yes. Yeah, that would feel like a slap on the wrist if you were one of her victims. Well, yeah, because her thing was I didn't realise that I was just as much a victim of this cult as, you know, as I was. But the thing is it's like, yeah, sure, he pulled you into it, but then you also started doing terrible things. So, Mm. And there's been a few tense situations like that that have come out of Nexium where quite a few of the people who were really high up in the organisation and did do horrible things to other people have come out and said, oh, no, I was a victim, I didn't know, and all these people beneath them are like, but you were awful to, like, to me, like, mm. where does the line high and up in the organization get drawn where, like, you can say, I was sucked in just as much a part of this cult as you, mm. but I was branding you with a hot laser? Like, I. Because he made me do it. I was Yeah. Mm. But you it's did tricky. it to other mm. people. So, anyway, we'll talk about that when we do um, adjust the gist on it, which is coming, I promise. I promise. I promise. And then the last thing I wanted to say is I had quite a few doctors get in touch with me after our last episode, Mm -hmm. hailing me a selfless hero for telling everybody to look at their shit when they go to the toilet. (laughs) Yes. They said it's very important. People shouldn't feel embarrassed to look at their poop. And they went one step further because... As you said in the episode, but isn't your poop all covered in toilet paper? Like once you stand up to look in it, what can you really see? And the doctor said, aha, what you should be doing is looking at the toilet paper after each wipe. Check the colour, check the consistency. Well, I would assume we're all doing that. We're waiting until we get a white swipe, right? That's Yeah, that's what your mum teaches you. When the Mm. toilet paper's white, you know you've got it all. So um, they said check colour, check consistency, all that kind of, like even small changes in your poop can indicate a health problem. So, well, you know, people may get squeamish about it and think that I'm being a bit too much for talking about it. Doctors (laughs) said that I am like the Joan of Arc of shit and I am, am saving lots of lives by preaching the act of staring at your poop after you've dropped a deuce in the toilet bowl. Once again, Rosanna Waterland, public health advocate. Thank you thank for you. spreading thank the you message. So You're so welcome. <laughs> and that was breaking news. <laughs> 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 um, today, Jacob yes. William Stanley. Today, mm. I'm giving you just the gist about how the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were created by a guy who was just trying to scam old people out of their retirement money as part of a massive Ponzi scheme. Uh, Your beloved 90s boy band was nothing but a financial scam. I'm giving you just the gist (laughs) on the infamous king of boy bands, Lou Pearlman. Yes. Yes. Oh, so very timely. He has been on my list for a while, but I haven't Mm -hmm. actually researched him. So thank you. Once again, you've done the work for me. You are so welcome. For and all of I, us. I, I actually um, had just the Backstreet Boys on my list as a just the gist for a while mm. because, you know, I was a BSB connoisseur when mm-hmm. I was in my early teens. 
And when I sort of started, I was listening to this audio book about it all and it's so messed up. Like the back, all those boy bands back then were completely scammed pretty much. Mm. And it just, you know, speaks to a lot of what's going on in the news right now with Britney and how a lot of these kids back in the 90s just signed deals and got involved with really dodgy people and, um, you know, were kind of left quite scarred by it. So mm. here we go. This is just the gist on infamous king of boy bands. Lou Pellman. So here for it. I know. Oh, he's so dodgy and gross. Okay. So Lou Pellman is pretty dodgy right from the get-go. He's born in the 50s um, in Flushing, Queens, where the nanny is from in Mm -hmm. New York. He grows up there. His friends say that he was that weird kid that lied all the time, which we all have a friend from childhood who was that weird kid that just told lies all the time. And apparently he was like the only person who didn't seem to think it was obvious he was lying about everything all the time was him. And mm. there was this incident where he had his bar mitzvah, which is what Jewish kids have when they're, I think when they turn 13, they get a bar, uh, boys get a bar mitzvah and girls get a bat mitzvah. Mm-hmm. And he told everybody that he was related to Art Garfunkel of Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> and they had to come to his bar mitzvah because Art Garfunkel, his cousin or whatever, was going to be there. And Mm. all the kids were just like, yeah, okay, Lou. Like, Mm. Lou spins shit. We're not – Art Garfunkel's not going to be at your bar mitzvah. So not a lot of kids came, but some kids did. And who turns up but Art frickin' Garfunkel. (laughs) For the first time in his life, he actually told a true story and had a cool connection. And so Uh the kids went wild. It became like this legendary story. Um, And that's when he realized that like fame and talent can really make people like you because Mm -hmm. after his bar mitzvah that Art Garfunkel turned up to, he became really popular. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he had no talent, but he did have a lot of self-belief and narcissism, like (laughs) lots of narcissism, And zero talent is always an excellent combination. Recipe, yeah. Oh, sounds like every one of my ex-boyfriends. And so <laughs> at least the ones who wanted to be writers. And what a shit. <laughs> so when he finishes school, he very randomly gets obsessed with blimps. You know those big blow-up air things oh, that yeah, looks yeah, like yeah, a big yeah, yeah. balloon in the sky. Like yeah. I think the most famous one is the Goodyear blimp. The Goodyear we don't one. have them in Australia, but it's like a big balloon thing in the sky. I don't know if we do or don't have any in Australia, but I did just find out today that there are only 25 in the world. Oh, well. So if you've seen a blimp in real life, endeavor you're them. in the minority. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen a blimp in real life. When I was in LA once for work, I saw the Goodyear blimp flying over Hollywood and I was like, ah, because mm. we just don't have them here. Mm. But um, yeah, it's like a big balloon thing that generally has an advertisement on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, but he got obsessed with blimps because apparently his apartment in Flushing was right across from Flushing Airport and that was when blimps were becoming a thing. So he would see them landing and taking off at the airport all the time. Mm. So when he finishes school, he spends some time in Germany with a major airstrip construction company on his parents' dime because his parent he was an only child and his parents doted on him. And mm. he said, I like blimps. And they said, go to the blimp place in Germany. So off he went and he learned mm-hmm. some blimp things. He comes back to the US and uses his connection to this German blimp company to convince people that he is a blimp mogul. (laughs) 
<laughs> and um, he's in his early 20s. And this massive jeans company at the time, I think these jeans are still around, Jordash jeans. Never it was like quite them. a big brand in the US, Jordash jeans. Um, they sign a deal to Lisa Blimp off him um, that will fly around in the sky, like saying Jordash jeans on the side. Mm. The thing is, he doesn't have any blimps yet. So he takes the money they pay him to lease his blimp and then he builds a blimp. Like <sighs> he builds it. He's like, I spent some time at the blimp place in Germany. I can build a blimp. So he gets his friends from the neighbourhood around Queens to help him build this blimp and they put Jordash jeans on the side. They send it up into the sky and within five minutes it crashes and is destroyed. So, <laughs> Did the Hindenburg yeah. disaster teach us nothing? But I guess not. But here's the thing. At first I was like, oh, what an idiot. He just was like had wow. too much hubris and was incompetent. But he had insured this thing for a few million dollars. So mm. a lot of people say that this was just his way to get some startup cash. So he gets $3 million for the blimp crashing and he takes that and starts an actual air company called Transcontinental Airlines. Mm -hmm. And he buys a lot of helicopters and planes and a couple of blimps and he starts just basically being like a private plane company, like people rent planes and helicopters off him. Mm -hmm. He actually gets a really successful deal with McDonald's. So they start advertising on his, a couple of his blimps. So he does start mm -hmm. making like some decent money. Mm -hmm. He decides to move the company to Orlando because like Orlando, Florida is quite a tacky, blimpy place. Like there's a lot of theme parks there, Disneyland, SeaWorld, all that kind of thing. There's a lot of fast food there. It's just the kind of tacky place where if you look up in the sky, you'll probably see a blimp. So he was like, I got to get out of New York. I got to go to Blimp Central, Orlando, Florida. Mm -hmm. Well, I think yes. you could probably lump all of Florida into that. My first experience <laughs> yes. of Miami culture when I arrived there a couple of years ago, um, walked down to the beach, lay down in the sun, opened my eyes and looked up to see a plane carrying a flag that was essentially a billboard <laughs> with a picture of a girl wearing a bikini holding two machine guns at advertising a shooting <laughs> ranch that you could go to and shoot whatever gun you would like. Yes, um, that is Florida to a T. The mm. thing about Orlando is, though, it's like inland Florida, so it doesn't even have the beach. It's just tacky, I want to say trailer trashy, like kind mm -hmm. of like what Australians would call Bogan Central. Mm-hmm. Where people like to look, where people look up in the sky and get excited when they see a blimp uh -huh. or a giant flag with a girl in a bikini holding guns. <laughs> so it was a smart move for him. As someone who sells like blimp advertising, it was mm. a good place to be. <laughs> so um, he becomes quite a successful, well-known businessman in Orlando. He buys a big, nice house. He's like the guy who owns the air company. And at some point in the early 90s, new kids on the block rent a couple of his planes to fly them to a few different concerts. Mm -hmm. And he like gets talking to them and their management. And when he realizes how much money they're raking in, he's like, yes, yes, mm -hmm. thanks. That's smart. Mm -hmm. So he decides he wants to make his own new kids on the block. Uh -huh. And I think it's not just about money. Like in the I watched a couple documentaries and stuff for this and um, a lot of people said, A, it was about money because he wanted lots of money, but B, there was that sad little part of him that wanted to be, you know, the famous talented musician like Art Garfunkel. He wanted to be mm. popular like he was that day at his little party and also 
I won't go into this in too much detail because none of it's ever been confirmed. There's a lot of rumours that he also liked young boys. Uh-huh. Right. I, it's some of the boys that he dealt with over the years from the lesser known bands have said that he was inappropriate with them. Everybody at the very least said he was creepy and mm-hmm. he would do things like wanting to massage them and uh, like that uh, kind of thing. So, I mean, I, we're not going to really go into that into this episode because nothing I could ever read anywhere really confirmed it as a thing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people say, if you want to know why he wanted to get into boy bands, it was money, it was fame, and he just also liked being around boys. So uh-huh. those are those are the reasons people say. Uh-huh. So he just makes a boy band. He just decides to make one and he makes one. Mm-hmm. In 1993, he forms another part of his company, Transcontinental Airlines, but he calls it Transcontinental Records. <laughs> and he just says, I'm a record mogul. <laughs> and he puts audition notices in the local paper and mm-hmm. in sort of popular audition newsletters that go around. And Orlando, as it turns out, is a really excellent place for this because there's so many young performers working at all the theme parks. Like a Mm -hmm. lot of young, talented kids go to Orlando to get performing jobs. Mm -hmm. And so a bunch of young guys, like mostly children, to be honest, come to one of his big airline hangars and he holds auditions in there. Mm. And eventually he picks his final five there's and it, it blows people's minds how young they were. Nick Carter is 13. Oh. AJ McLean is 15. Brian Luttrell is 18. Howie Durrow is 19. And Kevin Richardson is the oldest. He's 22. Oh. Yeah. So huh. they all sort of knew each other already. Nick and AJ and Howie had uh, formed a little a cappella group and they were singing at like restaurants and stuff for money. Uh-huh. So those three knew each <laughs> other. And then Kevin, who had been playing Aladdin at Disneyland, mm. knew like Howie a bit. So they called him in and then Brian was Kevin's cousin. So he called him in and they just formed this little group. They sung really well together. And mm-hmm. Lou names them the Backstreet Boys after the famous local Backstreet Market, which is in town. Huh. Yeah. So that's how it happened. He just put a thing in the paper and there they were. They all signed contracts, but without even really knowing what they're signing, they're just like, Mm. oh my God, this super important record mogul, the CEO (laughs) of Transcontinental Records (laughs) is going to make us stars. Like, let's do it. They were like, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And he puts them to work. So this is 1993. And he does actually put a lot of his own money into it. Like he hires managers, songwriters, choreographers, vocal coaches, mm-hmm. and they work seven days a week, all day, mm-hmm. every day in one of the airplane hangars, just practicing like dance moves, how to sing without getting out of breath, like mm-hmm. live performance, all of that. And they're pretty well taken care of. Like Lou Pelman wants it to feel like they're a family and he even makes all of them call him Big Papa. He wants to be like everyone's Big Papa. Mm -hmm. And so they're all put up in apartments near each other. He takes them out to dinner all the time. He has them and their families over to his huge mansion all the time for like barbecues. Like AJ and Nick have a joint birthday party at his mansion Mm -hmm. and they're not getting paid any 
money at this mm-hmm. point, but also they don't have to spend any money. So all their expenses are taken care of. And he's like, if you ever need anything, just come to me and I'll sort it out for you. Mm-hmm. But there were times like later in later years, they said, you know, one of us couldn't like pay a car payment because we're not getting paid. Mm-hmm. And so you would go to him and he'd be like, oh, I'll just write it. I'll pay the car payment. Like, and mm-hmm. so they were sort of like, oh, okay, like, well, we're not getting paid, but he's covering everything. They were getting a per diem of $30 a day. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, just like here's 30 bucks to buy, I don't know, doodads and handballs and yo-yos. We get more than that when we're on tour. Yeah. What do we get a day? More than that. 50. Do we? Oh, woohoo. Mm, but we I also think. get paid for Maybe the tour. Maybe it's 100. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) I never noticed. But this was all under the assumption of like, well, we are so lucky that he's paying for everything now and he's going to help us make it. And so, you know, one day we'll make it and we'll become famous and we'll start making serious money. But for now, he's covering everything. Like, how lucky are we? That was kind Mm. of the assumption. And it doesn't happen as quickly or as easily as like what I think people assume. So they audition and form in 1993. Lou Pearlman pays for all this training and then they pay some dodgy songwriter to just write them a few crappy songs and they start going and performing in shopping malls. So they just go everywhere performing in shopping malls, performing in high schools, performing at local fairs, just anything. If there's a woman in a bikini holding two guns, the Backstreet Boys are there singing <laughs> some song because he's just trying to get the attention of mm. major record labels to try and mm. get them a record deal. Mm. And finally, after doing this for a couple of years, Years, they get signed by Jive Records, who mm. send them to Sweden in 1995 to record some songs written by Max Martin, mm-hmm. who we mentioned in our Free Britney episode is kind of like the king of pop songs. Mm-hmm. Ed, any popular pop song you've ever heard in your life, Max Martin probably wrote it. Mm-hmm. He wrote Hit Me Baby One More Time, mm-hmm. which was Britney's first song. And so they go there, they record some songs with Max Martin. And finally, two years after first auditioning for Lou Pearlman in that airplane hangar, Backstreet Boys released their first single on radio in 1995 called We've Got It Going On. Do you I remember this song? I don't think I've song? ever heard that one. <gasps> Only real fans will know. Deep Ready? cut. <clears throat> Come on now, everybody. You know that Backstreet's got it. We've got it going on for you. Ah, that song. It's ringing a bell, and I think I thought it's it was a terrible KOTB, song. But mm. it's a terrible song. It bombs in the US. Bombs, but it's really popular in Europe. Like literally, goes to the top five of the charts in several European countries. And because Lou Pearlman's all about money, he's like, screw America. Let's go to Europe. And so they switch all their attention over there and they go on a little tour there. And in 1996, they release their first album. They don't release an album in the US. They only release an album in Europe. Mm -hmm. And it's self-titled. It's called Backstreet Boys. And it Mm -hmm. has one of my favorite BSB songs on it ever called Quit Playing Games With My Heart. Oh, classic. Yes. Oh, classic. Can Mm. you sing it? (laughs) <laughs> Come on. Quit playing, Quit playing games, games with my heart. My heart. I should have known from the start. Is that, that one. the one where they keep morphing into each other in the video clip and they're dancing on a chair and what looks like an airplane hangar, which may have oh, been no, Perlman's hangar? I think that's as long as you love me. 
I think that yeah, comes later. You're correct. Um, yeah. Okay, so they released their album, Backstreet Boys. Um, then they released their second album in 1997 called Backstreet's Back, and it goes number one everywhere. But this is still internationally. They have two albums out all over the world, no albums out in America. Like they literally in Europe are getting mobbed outside the hotel room and then they fly home to Florida and people are like, get the F out of my way in the taxi line. Like they're nobodies. It makes so, sense to me because they were filling the void left by Take That when they split yeah. up. So there was already sort of a pre-made audience for a five-member boy True, band. True, in Europe, yeah. And then when Robbie left Take That and they disbanded, everyone was then able to just grasp onto Backstreet Boys as their, mm. their replacement. Makes sense. Because Take so, That were not big in the US either. They were only big in... Europe and the UK, really. Yeah. So in 1997, when they've got these two huge albums out all over the world and nothing in the US, the US finally starts to take notice. So Mm -hmm. they combine the most popular songs off both of those international albums they've released and they turn it into their first US album called Backstreet Boys. And that reaches number four on the US chart. So that's like really big. And then Mm -hmm. US girls start flipping out over them, like flipping out, they start ordering the other international albums in. So there's, Uh this seems like a lot of detail that I'm telling you about different albums, but the point is they just kept having do-overs, like which is what you can Mm. do before the age of internet. Like, oh, that one didn't sell that well. So let's take the two best songs off that one and put it onto this one. And so Mm. they technically have like four different debut albums and then Uh Like I was one of the loser girls who went to like HMV and got them to specially order in the European release album that they Mm. didn't have here because it was a different one. It had different cuts of different songs on it. Like, oh, what a loser. Anyway, that was me. (laughs) I can empathise. Anytime I'd go overseas, if there was a stopover in somewhere like Singapore, that was the place where you could get like all the different countries' releases of certain albums and you could collect them all if you were that sad little obsessive Exactly. So they had all these they had all these weird different albums everywhere, but it made America feel like they'd come out of nowhere because they'd been brewing away, getting popular and popular all over the world. And then it seemed like in America they just burst onto the scene, but they'd actually been working for like quite a long time. And like they got so popular, US got like MTV had to invent the show Total Request Live because so many girls were calling MTV requesting Backstreet Boys songs be played <laughs> and they had to stop. Like they couldn't just keep playing Backstreet Boys mm. songs without blaming it on the request. So they were mm. like, fine, let's just have a request show and say this is what everyone wants. Mm-hmm. So that show was literally invented because of like little stand girls. I love it. Mm-hmm. So they had officially taken off all those albums combined had sold 30 million copies Mm -hmm. and they have all those great early songs all i have to give as long as you love me backstreet's Mm -hmm. back Mm -hmm. they went on u.s and international tours that brought in hundreds of millions of dollars like they are now officially the biggest band in the world and Mm -hmm. you know they'd signed with lou pelman in 1993 it's now 1998 so they've been at it for five years now Mm -hmm. and you know it felt like it went slow and then it snowballed and now they're huge so then they start recording what will become their biggest album ever Millennium Mm -hmm. which has like I Want It That Way Larger Than Life Caleb's favourite that's right (laughs) but then they kind of what is (laughs) Caleb 
Caleb, uh, well, Caleb thinks the lyrics to I Want It That Way is what? Don't, don't treat, treat me, me that, that way. way. And he was so <laughs> proud of himself for knowing a pop culture reference. He was so proud of himself. I think I <gasps> fell off my chair we when he both sung did. that. I can't remember the context of the conversation that we were having, but he just for some reason felt the need to sing his favourite Backstreet Boys song. And, and he was so proud wrong. that he knew it. <laughs> He's such an old folky. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Yeah, so, you know, they've brought in hundreds of millions of dollars. Their albums have sold over 30 million. They're the biggest band in the world. They're now recording what will be a huge album. And they're like, so can we get paid now? Mm. Because they have not been paid. They've been working for five years, still mm. under this system where everything is paid for and they get a $30 day per diem, which is crazy to me that when they were like, performing massive tours, Backstreet's Back, or they were getting paid $30 a day. Mm. Like it seems outrageous, but they're still so young, I guess. Mm. So they're still on this system where, you know, if you want something, he'll Lou will buy it for you. But like other than that, like you're good. And like Lou Perlman is astronomically rich at this point. And mm. so they know lots of money has been made. Like these tours make ridiculous amounts of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm. And so they're kind of like, where are all our profits going? And this is when they talk to NSYNC. Ah. So NSYNC had been their mortal enemies uh-huh. because Lou Pellman had turned them against each other on purpose. Mm. So a couple of years after BSB formed, when they were still just singing in malls and kind of starting to take off a little bit in Europe, Mm. Lou Pellman did something a little sneaky. He'd seen that they were starting to get big, the Backstreet Boys, and a friend says that he said at the time, like, why would I own Coke and let someone else own Pepsi when I could own Coke and Pepsi? Like, Mm. rather let someone else come up with a band to compete with the Backstreet Boys I'll come up with a band to compete with the Backstreet Boys. Uh-huh. So he secretly holds auditions in 1995 to form another boy band and that band becomes NSYNC. Mm-hmm. And they start going through the same exact process as Backstreet Boys. They are working seven days a week. They're rehearsing. They're slogging it out. They're not getting paid. He's basically putting them through boy band boot camp. Mm-hmm. Backstreet Boys, it's all kept a secret from them. But then they eventually find out and they're pissed because they're like – how could you manage our competition? Like that's mm. what? And um, they're pissed, like NSYNC is pissed that Backstreet Boys are getting all the attention and all the resources and all the better songs. And, you know, Backstreet Boys are pissed that like they're just there at all. And Lou Pellman kind of uses that animosity to keep them from ever talking to each other so they can never really talk about, hey, maybe we shouldn't be each other, like be angry at each other. Maybe mm. we should be angry at him. Mm-hmm. I'll say he too that I won't go into them, but over the 90s and 2000s, Lou Pellman actually formed like 20 bands, like so many dodgy ones. Like mm-hmm. he made this boy band factory and he pretty much like just was throwing boy bands at the wall and seeing which ones would stick. And when BSB and NSYNC got so big, anyone would sign with him because they were so desperate for stardom. So there were a lot of other bands that he was also screwing over. You might have heard of some of them. Like um, I think one's called, I, don't, I can't even remember, Random Names. So none there was really a girl, stuck. There was a girl group called Innocence that Britney Spears was in for five minutes, but then her mum realised it was dodgy and she got out. Like mm. 
Yeah, none of them stuck. He he was doing this with a lot of other bands. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he cultivated this hatred between Backstreet Boys and NSYNC so they would never talk to each other. Like they were making fun of each other in the press. There was a lot of animosity there. <laughs> but, you know, it was all because he didn't want them comparing notes on mm-hmm. his dodginess. And then one night in 1998... The two groups played against each other at a charity basketball game. And by this Mm. point, BSB were huge, biggest band in the world. NSYNC weren't as big, but they were also big. Like they were hundreds of millions of dollars big. They'd released their first album that had like tearing up my heart and I Mm -hmm. want you back. So they were, Mm -hmm. you know, big. Mm -hmm. And on the way back from this charity basketball game on the bus, they all start talking to each other. And then it kind of comes up, hey, has anyone been paid? (laughs) And they're all just like, Mm, no. Mm. <laughs> and um, Lance Bass, who was a member of NSYNC, tells this story in a documentary I watched, I watched for this called The Boy Band Con that mm. he produced, actually. It's really, really good. That what happened was for NSYNC was after a few years, so after they'd released Tearing Up My Heart, I Want You Back, they'd had a number one album. They were on an na- international world tour that was bringing in a lot of money. They, I think they'd been working with him for like three years straight by this point, making nothing. Mm-hmm. And Lou Pearlman invited each of the band members and their families to a fancy dinner where he said they were going to get their very first check, like their very first mm-hmm. paycheck. Mm-hmm. And they were so excited because they were like, oh, my God, this is it. Like we've been working so hard. And he said that him and his mom were kind of speculating like, well, what do you think it'll be like? It had ha- like they thought at the very minimum it would be a million dollars and they thought maybe about five to ten million dollars each based mm-hmm. on the astronomical profits. Mm-hmm. So they get to this fancy dinner and on each table is one of those silver, um, you know, those fancy silver things that rich they people put over meals. Yeah. Cloche. Yes. Mm. Okay. Thank you, JD Rockefeller. (laughs) And they each pull this cloche off and underneath it is a check and they're so excited. And then each member of NSYNC opens up this envelope and inside is a check for (laughs) $10,000 each for three years of work in which they had made hundreds of millions of dollars. It's actually one more zero than I was expecting. I thought this might have been a four-figure situation. So at least it's five, but wow. So they realise on the bus that Lou has done the same things to both bands. Each each member of the Backstreet Boys and each member of NSYNC had only been paid $10,000 for the entire time. They'd mm. been working for him. And what's that? 10,000 by 10, 100,000. So he mm. had spent $100,000 paying these guys and they were making him hundreds of millions. And so, this was all above board based on their contracts, I'm guessing. Well, this is when each group is like, maybe we need a lawyer to look at this contract. So the Backstreet Boys go to a lawyer and NSYNC go to a lawyer and they are basically told these are the worst management entertainment contracts we have ever seen. And not only (laughs) did the contracts stipulate that Lou Pellman was like the boss and owner of each group, so therefore the main recipient of all profits they would make, the contracts also stipulated that he was the sixth member of each group. <laughs> yeah. 
So Backstreet Boys was like Nick, Brian, Howie, Kevin, AJ and Lou. <laughs> like... <laughs> Big Papa, if you don't mind. Yeah. Big Papa. So he had in the contract that he was the sixth member of each group. So that $10,000 they each got, he got that too. He paid himself that too just because he's the sixth member. And so, and not only that, not only that, he had put an advance system in place. So all that money that he had generously put up to create them all the expenses he paid, the dance teachers, the rehearsals, the vocal coaches, the houses he put them up in, whenever they went to him and said, oh, I need help with my car payment, and he said, you mm. don't have to worry about anything, they were paying for that. That was all coming out of their future profits. He didn't pay for anything. So technically at this point, they were the two biggest bands in the world, not just boy mm. bands, they were the two biggest bands in the world. They wow. had been paid $10,000 each but wow. they were actually in massive debt to Lou Pearlman <gasps> based on all the money he had spent forming the bands. Oh. Yeah. So Backstreet Boys and NSYNC are both like, okay, we need to sue. <sighs> and Lou Pearlman immediately gets nasty as soon as they bring in lawyers all that like, oh, we're a family, call me big papa, I'm your second dad, you'll always be at home with me, gone, nah, he's pissed. He pulls that whole thing that, you know, I think whenever workplaces or bosses have that we're a family vibe, I'm wary of it because it's mm. like, yeah, we're a family when you want me doing something for you but not when I need something from you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he basically pulls the whole you'd be nothing without me, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC wouldn't even exist if I hadn't held those auditions and paid those dance teachers and those songwriters and, like, I paid to make you. So how can you, like, how can you say that you're ungrateful? How can you say I haven't given you anything? <laughs> but then he's invoicing them for all those things. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so I won't, I guess I though, I think... It's that weird thing where fame is considered a tangible, profitable thing. Mm. Like just being famous does not give you money. Like, mm. so I think to him, he's like, look how famous, you're in the biggest band in the world. You should be grateful. And it's like, yeah, and I need to come to you to make my car payments. Mm. Like, it's so funny to me. Like, I remember once, it's happened to me a few times actually when I've been on planes and people who recognize me have been like, oh, my God, Rosie, like, I'm a fan. And then they'll go, I can't believe you're in economy. And I'll be like, <laughs> bitch, like, I got the best deal I could. This is a $79 deal. I got an email. Like, I don't, people think fame equals fortune, fortune but mm. it, it really doesn't. Mm. So I won't bore you with all the legal details, but, you know, Backstreet Boys and NSYNC both end up winning their cases against him and they manage to have their contracts voided. But they don't get any of the money they've earned up until this point. It just means that going forward, they can sign a better deal with someone else. Mm -hmm. But in terms of their time with him so far, they're screwed. All that money they've made. Wow. Sorry, bad contract. Wow. Like, you're free of it now, but you get nothing. Yeah. He took so, <laughs> advantage of young boys yeah. in a way that oh, really and it gets worse. profited him, didn't it? It gets worse. This isn't, they are the least of the people he has scammed. There is more to come. Uh -huh. So 
Backstreet Boys go on to release Millennium, which, like I said, is pretty much their biggest album ever. NSYNC releases No Strings Attached, which is all about the fact that they've cut their strings from Lou Pearlman and they're no longer puppets to Lou Pearlman. Mm -hmm. But after those albums, the boy band craze kind of starts winding down. Like Mm. tastes are changing. It's, what is it now, like 2000, Mm -hmm. 2001-ish. Neither band ever reaches those huge levels of popularity again. So those few precious years where they were making serious money was kind of lost to them. They both got the tail end of it, but they missed most Mm. of it. So now, Lou Pearlman. Mm -hmm. After Backstreet Boys and NSYNC break ties with him. Mm -hmm. He keeps trying for a while to like put a bunch of other boy bands together. He's still considered a legend. Like one guy who I saw interviewed who was trying to be a little boy bander back then said that like, we saw the news. We knew about the court cases. We knew that he had ripped off BSB and NSYNC, but Mm. like he was Lou Pearlman. He was a legend. And it was just kind of like, look, I mean, let's just like, get him to sign you into a band and figure it out later. Like get famous first and you'll sort out all the rest later. So even though people knew he was a bit dodgy, like people were like, he's Lou Frick and Perlman. He's a star maker. They still wanted to sign with him. But Lou Perlman was finding the same thing as BSB and NSYNC in that tastes were changing and their whole shtick was kind of behind the times now. He was kind of behind the times now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he'd always dreamed of being a famous, admired musician and he had scammed his way into being the sixth member of two of the biggest (laughs) boy bands ever. (laughs) But now, like, those bands both hated him and boy bands in general were kind of dying in popularity. Mm. And so this is where some of his investors start to get a little worried. So when he first moved to Orlando and set up his blimp company, he started taking money from investors Mm -hmm. and he had continued taking money from investors this whole time, like since the Mm eighties. And then when BSB and NSYNC got really popular, he started to get even more investors. And when I say investors, I don't mean like there were some wealthy people, but it was mainly just old people who'd gone to Florida to retire, who gave them like him, like their retirement money or their superannuation. Mm -hmm. And he outwardly looked extremely successful like he was the founder and manager of the two biggest bands in the world Mm. so when he would say to fairly inexperienced people like invest in transcontinental records like your money will be safe like if you invest a hundred thousand dollars i'll triple it and people Mm. believed him because Mm. look at factory boys on tv like come on and so when the boy bands took him to court all these people who have invested with him were like oh hey, can we like see our money or have it back? Like all that Mm. money we invested with you Mm. and he doesn't give it back. And so some complaints are made to the uh, Security Exchange Commission who are like the police for fraud and money Mm -hmm. stuff. And they go into his office to do an audit. And they say later that the office was full, but everything seemed odd. Like it was full of staff, but everything looked new. It looked like everything had just been unpacked. And people were talking on phones, but it seemed like they weren't really talking to anyone. And they find out later that's because the whole office is fake. He'd hired extras to be there just for the audit Mm -hmm. because he didn't really have a company. Like it was just him. Mm -hmm. And so they go through the books and there's no money, all the money 
is missing that he's ever taken from investors. Mm. And this is when they realised that Lou Pellman had been running a Ponzi scheme. He'd been <laughs> taking investors' money, promising them huge profits. Oh. Then he would give them fake ast- account statements every few months showing them that, oh, look how much your money has grown, but he was actually just spending all the money. And get this, until Bernie Madoff was caught in 2008, Lou Pellman had run the biggest and longest running Ponzi scheme in US history. It was over 20 years and he had stolen almost a billion dollars from investors, most of whom were little old people thinking they were investing in Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. Oh, what a scumbag. I know. Wow. So a warrant is issued for his arrest and Lou Pellman takes off, disappears, leaves the country. They can't find him for ages until a German tourist who must be a boy band fan Mm. spotted him eating breakfast at a hotel in Bali. So this German (laughs) tourist takes a photo of him, sends it to the FBI Uh and the FBI come and arrest him in 2007. So he's found guilty of like fraud, theft, money laundering, just all those things to do with stealing lots of money. And at his sentencing, to find out how much time he's getting in prison, he asks the judge if his prison term can please include unlimited access to a phone line and internet because he needs it to manage his latest boy band that he's trying to launch on the US scene. (laughs) (laughs) The judge denies his request. Mm And Lou Pullman is sentenced to 25 years in prison. He dies of a stroke while still incarcerated in 2016, aged Uh 62. Uh And of the billion dollars he stole and defrauded from people, there is still $300 million missing. They don't know where it is. They think he must have hidden it in accounts somewhere. Mm -hmm. In an effort to get back some of the investors' money so these poor little old Florida people would have something to retire on, they decided to hold like a really fancy exclusive auction for all of his priceless like artworks and memorabilia and designer furniture at his mansion. But when they went and had it valued, they realised it was all fake. So they just chucked it all on eBay. (laughs) He just sold all his stuff on eBay. Um, And the money it made was barely enough to cover legal costs, let alone repaying the naive old people whose retirement funds he stole by telling them that they would own a little piece of the Backstreet Boys. And so that is just the gist of the infamous king of boy bands, Massive Scammer, Lou Pellman. That was fascinating. I know. Wow. All those years at their peak, those guys got almost zero cash. $30 a day. That's so wild to me. Yeah. $30 a day. And what was the documentary you mentioned that Lance Bass produced? Yeah. So we give you just the gist, but if you want more, um, the best documentary produced by Lance Lance Bass. It's on YouTube. It's called The Boy Band Con, The Story of Lou Pearlman. Mm -hmm. So he interviews a couple of other NSYNC members, a couple of Backstreet Boys members. He interviews Aaron Carter in what is a very disturbing interview in which Aaron Carter is clearly on something. It's really sad. Yeah. He interviews a female member of the girl group Innocence who talked about how Lou Pullman would like 
film her and the other Innocence girls in their fitting room and then show the tapes to the boys as like a bonding exercise. Like he was just generally pretty seedy. Mm. There's also a great episode of the TV show Vanity Fair Confidential where um, long form articles that have been in Vanity Fair get turned into like an episode of television. So there's an episode of that about Lou Pearlman, um, which is on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. I also read this book called The Hit Charade, mm. Lou Pearlman, Boy Bands and the Biggest Ponzi Scheme in US History. That's by Tyler Gray. So you can get that online. Yeah, so it was just all by a scammer who not only scammed wow. them, but and that's the thing that people kept saying like he couldn't he was making money off them. Like he made le- legitimate even though mm. it was a dodgy contract, like a dodgy deal and he ripped them off. He did legitimately mm. make multi multi millions of dollars off those bands, off mm. Backstreet Boys and NSync. So why did he also have to do the Ponzi scheme on the side? He was just greedy. Yeah. Just greedy, greedy, greedy. Some people just born to hustle in that way, I guess. And so, I mean, we all kind of, we all, I say that because I'm a BSB fan, so I assume. Mm. I know where they've all ended up. I mean, none of them are hugely, except for Justin Timberlake, astronomically wealthy or successful. Like, Mm. you know, I think the boys, Backstreet Boys had a residency in Las Vegas for a while, which made them some money. Mm -hmm. They've tried touring with other boy bands, so they did the combined thing with New Kids on the Block. Now they're Mm. doing a combined thing with NSYNC. Same as the NSYNC guys, like they've tried doing bits of touring here and there, but without Mm. Justin, they don't really work. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, they've all just kind of, they're they're still kind of famous. There's um, an amazing documentary the Backstreet Boys did, I think back in like 2016 called like Backstreet Boys, Show Us What You Made Of or something. And Mm. it's actually really sad and quite poignant. They all just talk about like, how embarrassing it is to be grown men in a band called Backstreet Boys, but mm. they have to keep doing it because they need to make money. And they re- they all speak really candidly about how difficult it is to go from massive levels of fame to like not even being recognised in the supermarket, like, mm. and, you know, not really having any money and being stressed about like, how do you get a day job when a year ago you were the most famous person in the world? Like, yeah. so they talk quite candidly about that. And, um, yeah, I mean, they're all kind of just, I don't know. Like if I saw any of the Backstreet Boys walking down the street tomorrow, I'd just be like, oh, look at that. <laughs> like I wouldn't, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So, and Justin Timberlake was hugely successful, but we all know that that was only off the back of him being a dick to Britney so he can go eat a poo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the world agrees with you on that one. And so... They, like, is their only source of income now continuing to gig together? Yeah, I guess. And because you know, just keep the, doing that until they retire. Yeah, like, they, BSB at least tried to release a few more albums, but none of them were huge. I don't think NSYNC has released anything since Justin Timberlake left. And even if they did, the music industry is so different now you're not really making money off releasing songs. You're making money off live touring. So that's what they all have to do. They all just have to slog it out and tour. Mm -hmm. And that's why they keep doing these, oh, BSB and KOTB or BSB Sync or Backsync. Like they're just Mm. trying the next gimmick to try and sell tickets. And I don't, you know, hustle. They need good on them. They should hustle. They need Mm -hmm. to make money. I don't blame them at all. Like Mm -hmm. 
they've all got families now. They're all, they all, you know, need yeah. to bring home the bacon. They can have my money if they bring the show to a city near me. I will oh, be there. Big time. Big time. I mean, I never, oh, I'm going to. So I did see the Backstreet Boys once. I never saw them in concert, but I saw mm. them once mm. in a very embarrassing display from my childhood. I found out they were coming to Australia. They weren't doing a concert. They were just doing a one-song appearance at Pitt Street Mall in Sydney. Mm. And I think I've told you this embarrassing story <laughs> yes. before. Mm. I lived in the Blue Mountains. I caught the train all the way down there. And I thought getting there at 9 a.m. would be plenty of time because the show mm. wasn't until 5, but it was already packed and I didn't mm. want to stand up the back like a loser. So I paid these girls at the very front $50 to let me come in and stand <laughs> with them. And I sort of made friends with them. And seriously, I don't think they came out till like 5.30. So from 9 a.m. to 5.30, we were just squashed in to Pitt Street Mall, staring at an empty stage, just mm. like talking about Backstreet Boys, waiting for them. Like that, it was just not really, you know, it, we just stood there all day. You couldn't leave to get food because then mm. you'd lose your spot. Mm. And then their bus pulled up at like five o'clock and everyone went crazy. Mm. And then this girl from McDonald's came out with a tray of meals and she was walking it to the bus and people mm. were like, that's their dinner. <laughs> and so then she walked in and she took this McDonald's to the bus. And when she came out with the empty tray, someone grabbed the tray, mm. like having the McDonald's tray that they'd been served on was this big thing. And then finally they came out and Kyle and Jackie O introduced them. And then this guy like, ugh having access, he, this guy just, cause there was a V like we were at the front of the fan section, but then in front of us was a VIP section right in front of the stage. And you needed a special wristband to get in there. Mm. And this guy walked up to me and he's like, Oh, I'm leaving. Do you want my wristband? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so I got his wristband and I got to go into the VIP area. So I was like, right next to the stage. Mm -hmm. And then they didn't even sing any good songs. They sung one of their new songs off their new album that no one cared about black oh. and blue. And then it was over and I just caught the train home and that is, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Oh. People were obsessed with it. I was obsessed with them. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not really a new thing. We've all seen footage of people going wild for the Beatles and for ABBA and, you know, mm. that mania is something that I guess is just sort of inbuilt to us when oh. we've got that level of hero worship, particularly young girls. It's kind of expected from them and cultivated in them. Um, but I think it's important to... Now? Oh, it, it was One Direction and then it became, mm. now it's K-pop bands. They're all into the K-pop ones. Right. But I think it's important to respect fangirl culture. I think it's like, I think people assume that because it's teenage girls, it shouldn't be respected and it's not as important and it's not as, but I mean, how is a bunch of screaming teenage girls at a Backstreet Boys concert any different to a bunch of screaming dudes at like a Rolling Stones concert? Mm. It's the same thing. I think mm -hmm. there's a lack of respect for like that part of culture that I think is silly. And I really liked that um, Harry Styles from One Direction has never denied that. Like all the other guys from One Direction, when they get asked about the fact they come from a boy band, they're like, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, but when he gets asked, he's like, yeah, I'm really proud of it. Like mm. 
uh, we made really cool music and who's to say that like why do people not respect it just because our fans were teenage girls like they have amazing taste i i love that they're my fans like it, mm. it's just it's i think it's funny that people think it's lame but it's the same as any other fan culture objectively these people could sing really well the songs oh, were actually yeah. really good they were fantastic performers with a lot of charisma they were very very good at their jobs there's Anyone who denies that is kidding themselves. And the sad thing is that McDonald's that I saw them get served that day on the bus probably put them over their $30 per DM budget. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm thinking that. It put them further into debt. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> oh. I could have I spotted them that 50 those girls gave me. <laughs> <laughs> you gave the girls the 50, didn't you? Oh, wait, that's right. Yeah, I gave them the 50. <laughs> Loser. Could have donated Anyway, it to so their that is just the gist of all of that. Your favourite boy bands were created just as part of a massive scam. Thank you for that. Well appreciated. You're welcome. I did love the Backstreet Boys, but I was more of an N-sinker. Um, but Backstreet Boys, the only one that I got the chance to actually go and see in concert one time. However, I was very disappointed that when they came out on stage, I was kind of drunk, so it was very confusing for me. <laughs> but there were only four of them. I was like, I'm oh yeah, because Kevin left. Sure Kevin left for a while, but then he came back. Uh huh. The oldest one. Yeah. Did he find a different hustle at that time, or? No, I think he just wanted to try other things and then when he realised that they weren't working he was like well I need the cash so he went back right Mm -hmm. but it's a bit awkward now because Brian um, has gone full Trump so and the other the other four are all quite progressive and cool and Brian is like full on QAnon Trump crazy yeah I forgot about that so I I don't know how you keep touring well i mean because there's been no tours because it's been covid so i don't mm. know mm. very interesting yeah. okay well um i guess we'll see you guys next week um do we oh housekeeping um uh follow <laughs> us on instagram oh shit we're so bad at this um like subscribe etc because apparently that's a thing to do important rate um, review uh, all of that oh uh, Brisbane and Perth. Uh, my shows, uh, my Kid Chameleon shows are almost sold out in both states, but there's still some tickets left. So jump on end of this month and then um, for Brisbane and then, oh wait, or maybe it's the other way around. End of July and August, Perth and Brisbane. Mm-hmm. So get tickets. Okay. All right. Bye. Love you. Listener.